0: You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it, but God's Word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still. Hello friends and faithful listeners, it's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news and light of scriptures, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, July the 31st. Episode number 127, One Greater Than The Voice. John 123 through 28. In our last study, we conducted our ninth Q&A session. We answered five main questions, but there were a total of 11 questions that we tackled in total. These questions were very challenging for the range from demon possession to playing checkers and dominoes to a couple of questions about cane to drinking and moderation. We also took on several heartfelt questions from one listener who has some very legitimate concerns. We feel this is one of our best Q&As yet. In today's episode, we listen to the voice of one crying in the wilderness, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. The Pharisees asked John why he was baptizing if he wasn't the Christ, or Elijah, or that prophet. John answered that he baptized with water, but there is one coming after him who is preferred before him. John gives us a beautiful picture of how we should view ourselves in light of Christ. We feel this episode would challenge everyone who listens. Now for the lesson and the teaching of God's Word. I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King.
1: Well, thank you for joining us today. We're very thrilled that you wanted to join into a podcast about a Bible study, and we're glad that you chose to listen to this one today. And here we are on the last day of July, and summer seems to be in full swing here in Oklahoma. Yeah, but it won't be long before it'll be fall.
0: (laughs) The leaves will be changing colors again.
1: Yeah, that's true, but right now it seems to be a long
0: ways off. Well, you know what seems a long ways off to me? No, what is that? The
1: ending of the Gospel of John. You've got to be kidding me. We're literally just getting started on this book, and you're already looking forward to the end? Well, not really. i just like to get you riled about something. Well, I'll be honest with you. When you start talking about how long these studies go, I wonder if that's the feeling of the audience as well sometimes. I don't want to get bogged down in the middle of a study that goes on for six or eight months and then find out that everybody was tired of our subject matter. That's always been a concern of mine.
0: I quit your worrying and just finish what you've started. The way I look at it, if people are wanting to study the Bible, they'll listen to it. I figure the gospel of John is one of the best choices for a book study. So I don't think you've got anything to be stressing about.
1: Yeah, you got some valid points there. Okay, let's get the show on the road. All right, I will. Let's start by reading our passage and then we're going to go verse by verse. Let's read John 123 through 28 quickly. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. We're going to anchor down on verse 23 for a good little bit right here. And I want to look at this where he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. John responds to the priest and the Levites by telling them that he is the voice of one that's crying in the wilderness, the very same one that Isaiah the prophet prophesied of. This is taken from Isaiah 40 in verse 3, meaning that he was sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord. Let me read you that passage. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John came to make the path straight before the one who is coming. Yes, John says that he's the voice, which can be interpreted as the sound of one, and he's the voice of one who's crying, and that word can mean shouting. So he's the sound of one who's shouting in the wilderness, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I really think that the wilderness is an interesting word here in the Greek. Tell us why it's so interesting. Well, it's the Greek word aromos. All right, eromos is a deserted place. It's an uninhabited place. It can be called a lonely place or a solitary place. It's a place that's been forsaken. When John says that he was sent to make straight the way of the Lord, he used another Greek word called euthenio right here. Euthenio means to be straightened as an existing road or path. It means to clear something for better travel. That can be linked
0: with John three. In 28, where John says that he was sent before Christ.
1: That's right. John told him in that verse that they bore him witness as well and said that he wasn't the Christ, but he was sent before him. And I believe what makes this such an interesting word is because it's also defined as to set the course, which is actually a nautical term. For further proof of this, this is the same word we see translated as governor back in James 3 and 4. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. So we see that this is saying that it's a nautical term, and James used it in the sense of which the word is used. Okay, so does that change the meaning of the verse? I don't think it changes the meaning at, at all, but it changes how we should look at it. Because John is saying that he is the instrument that is setting the course for Christ to come. John said, I'm steering things in the direction they need to be going under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. In Luke 3 and 5, we see a little more information concerning how we should view this statement. It says that every valley will be filled and that every mountain would be brought low. He's telling us that the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways will be made smooth. It was common in those days for a powerful leader to send heralds ahead who would proclaim the coming of their king. They not only would herald their coming but they would also improve the roads or even cut a new road through for the king.
0: I've heard that they would remove the stones from the path, straighten out the most crooked places, fill in the ravines and try to smooth out the rough
1: places. Yeah, they really would. All four Gospels use Isaiah 40 and 3 as applied to John the Baptist. You can find that in Matthew 3 and 3, Mark 1 and 3, Luke 3 and 4, and then right here again in John 1, verse 23 through 28 that we're looking at. I find it very intriguing that the Gospel of John is the only Gospel, though, who has John the Baptist saying this of himself. Every other time, someone else is saying this of John, but this time John is saying it of himself, that he is this voice. By claiming to be the one who's crying in the wilderness, John never really attached a prominent name to himself. Why didn't he say, I am the fulfillment of this, or I am the one that's doing this? So we realize that John still yet was trying to be low-key. John also gave
0: himself the title of one who is the servant to one who is greater.
1: That is true. I want to go into verse 24 at this time. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. Now, this verse is pretty much straightforward, and I mean that in several ways. These who came to John were of the Pharisee movement. Those who were sent from Jerusalem were Pharisees and? Well, this is where things get very interesting. Those who were sent to John were priests and Levites. These Pharisees were sent by the Sanhedrin who were the rulers over the temple. The people who ruled over the temple were predominantly Sadducees. All right. How about tell us what you're getting at? Well, it's odd to me that the Sadducees would send the Pharisees to do their interview of John.
0: Goodness, I see what you mean,
1: for that is odd. Well, even more unusual is the fact that in the Greek at the very beginning of the verse is a word that's really, really strange, and it's called deca octo Now, it's in most every of the ancient manuscripts. We don't see this as a problem in the English KJV because it's not translated like it is in the Greek there, but something is going on with this word.
0: There's always seems to be something going on with all these word meanings. What is it
1: now? Well, the word decaocto octo simply means 18 in the Greek. Now, that raises a few questions in my mind. Why do we have the number 18 mentioned here in the Greek? That is really strange. Why do you think it says that? Does this mean that there was 18 men sent? Does this mean that there was 18 of the people that was of the Pharisees who were sent? Was there a total of 18 priests and Levites sent from the Sanhedrin to interrogate John? Wasn't there 72 members of the Sanhedrin who held office? Yes, there definitely was. So if this is the correct way to view this, that means that they sent one-fourth of the whole Sanhedrin to question John the Baptist. For them to send so many men unto him, this means that they were pretty certain they had someone important on their hands. Before they left John and headed back to Jerusalem, they had to ask him some more questions. Well,
0: they needed to satisfy their own curiosity, I guess, but they also needed to give
1: a better answer to those who sent them to John. That's true, and that's why we go on into verse 25, and we see a little bit more of this. And they asked him and said unto him, "'Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet?' Here comes the root cause of why they were sent to question John. They wanted to know, why are you baptizing if you're not the Messiah? Why are you baptizing if you're not Elijah? Why are you baptizing if you're not that prophet?' Their main reason behind their question
0: was the fact that John was baptizing.
1: Yeah. So allow me to stretch your mind just a little bit right here. Do you have any idea why they associated the act of baptism with the Messiah? The reason they did this is they believed that John might have been the Messiah because he was dealing with water. This is your key right here.
0: You know, they felt this way because he was doing a type of cleansing ministry.
1: Yeah, and they knew the Messiah was to come and give them the waters of the Spirit. They believed that the Spirit was to be given to them in order to cleanse them. That's evident in many Old Testament texts, but I want to just go to a couple of those real briefly and look at them. One of them's found in Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 24. God told them through the prophet Ezekiel, "'I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land.'" Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Now get this, cleansing water. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. I will also save you. Guess how God's going to save us? He's going to save us from all of our uncleannesses. And he said he's going to call for the corn and he will increase it and lay no famine upon us. In other words, he's going to feed us. He's going to cleanse us. Water's involved and the Lord's involved. They were looking for this as something messianic. Now, Zechariah 13 and 1 is a very familiar portion. And I want to share that with you because I'm sure this was in the back of their minds. In that day, shall there be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. They believed that this fountain would be fountains of water, I know most of our preachers today preach it as the blood of Christ, but they were literally expecting a fountain of water to come in and to cleanse them. They didn't realize it would be the blood of Jesus that cleanses us, but the waters of the Spirit they were expecting the Messiah to give to them. And all of these passages correlate together. Now, there's a possibility that they were making some logical conclusions regarding John. Oh, yeah, How so. Well, they may have wondered if John, who was baptizing in Jordan, might be making these waters into the living water that the Messiah would give unto Israel. Why else would he be down there baptizing people in water? Come to the water, get clean, be cleansed. So they automatically assumed he must be the Messiah. He's dealing with water. This is some of what generated so much attention to John and his ministry.
0: Well, they truly thought he must be the Messiah because all the connection points they were looking for seemed to be present in John. They were basically asking him, why are you performing a religious ceremony with water if you're not the Christ?
1: That's right. He wasn't a functioning priest. So, John, why are you dealing with water? Are you showing us that that this specific ceremonial cleansing that we've been looking for, the one that we read of in the prophets? So this tells us something more even right here. Since John was not the Christ, he said he wasn't Elias, and he said that he wasn't that prophet. They were also inquiring as to where John got his authority to perform a religious ceremony like this. Oh, wow. I never thought about it that way, but it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. In other words, they could have been asking him this way. John, which rabbi trained you? Which synagogue have you been ordained by? Who from the ruling class has given you the right to do what you're doing? Do you have any kind of orders from someone up high to do what you're doing? What they didn't realize is he did have orders from someone up high and is much higher than the Sanhedrin. He was commissioned by God to do it. With this group being from the Sanhedrin, they would have known if John was commissioned by the ruling authorities or not. That's exactly right. The Jews had believed for years that there was a definite association between water baptism, being cleansed from sin and the coming of the Messiah. Here in John the Baptist, they had all three things, or at least they thought they did. That's true, and it makes me wonder if they were excited at the possibility of John being the Messiah or not. Why were they coming? Was they just doing it for informational purposes, or were they excited thinking this may be the Messiah? Were they just simply wanting to know so they could get rid of him like they did with Jesus later? Was they hoping they would find out that he claimed to be the Messiah so they could kill him on the spot? Or were they wanting to promote him? Were they really wanting him to be the Messiah? And now they're going back to Jerusalem disappointed.
0: You know, interesting enough, they seem to want to believe John was the Messiah,
1: but they hardly gave Jesus much consideration at all. No, they didn't. They didn't give him the time of day. And so that's what's intriguing to me. It seemed like they liked John better than they did Jesus, but... At the end, they begin to hate John too. So I I really don't know what it was about John that intrigued them. Maybe because John came before Christ and they thought this has got to be him. And since John wasn't, all of a sudden, six months later, here's this other guy says that he's doing the works of the Messiah. And so maybe there was just too much too soon for them. But either way, this is the way God said it would be. He said, I'm going to send one before. I'm going to send my messenger before. And so every prophecy told about John coming before the Messiah. Now, John answered all of their questions. He gave them some very vital information that they really needed to know. And he did all of that while remaining true to his calling. That ought to speak to every one of us ministers right here today. He did everything God expected him to do, everything God called him to do. He fulfilled his part. He treated people the way they were to be treated. And he did all of it while being true to the calling God placed on his life. What a testimony. I'm going to go back to John 1 and 26 now. and I want to look at this for a moment. John answered them, saying, "I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not." Now John didn't ignore their last question. What he was saying right here should have enlightened them. He told them that he most certainly baptized with water, but there's one standing among you that you don't even know. This is the one I've been telling you. He's coming after me. This is the one I've said he's preferred before me. I'm not worthy to even kneel down and loosen his shoe latches.
0: This should have set them to scanning the crowd. In my mind, they should have asked one more question at this point. They should have asked John to tell them who he is talking about.
1: Yeah, when he said, you got one standing among you, they should have thought rather than, well, who is he? Which one? They should have asked John, revealed his identity to us. But for some reason, they didn't inquire any farther. I personally believe that they were afraid to find the Messiah. That's why I believe they were actually relieved when John was not the Messiah. You know, they may not have believed that the Messiah was present at their time yet, but they sure gave John the fifth degree. Yeah, they grilled him pretty good. In Matthew 3 and 11 and Mark 1 and 8, Luke 3 and 16 and John 1 and 33, we see John baptizing with water, but yet we see this contrasted with Jesus coming to baptize with the Holy Ghost. I'm going to read you Luke 3 and 16 just for the sake of using one of those passages. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Okay, now I want to throw something at you right here that you may not have thought about before. Okay, try me and see. Would you believe me if I told you that Jesus may have started off as a Pharisee? You were for real, weren't you? Yeah. Now, I know this might anger some people, and some of you might think I've even flipped my lid.
0: Yeah. I think I just saw it came flipping by me a few minutes ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Please hear me out concerning what I have to say. John specifically said to the group that came, who the Bible says were Pharisees, there's one standing among you. Remember who is talking to, don't you? Yeah, he was answering the Pharisees. That's right. And many people interpret this as if John was speaking to the whole crowd that was assembled. But who all was standing there? We know that the Pharisees come and they were grilling him with questions. It sounds much more like John was talking to a particular group right here. If he was, then he was telling them that they had one among them. Okay, we know that the one among them was the same one who came after John. That's right. And allow me to give you a little more of my reasoning here. The Pharisees followed the teachings of Shammai. The Sadducees followed the teachings of Hillel. The Sadducees were a political group. They were highly influenced by Rome. The Pharisees despised that. They were political, but they were not political with Rome at this point. They were much more religious than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were very liberal, and the Pharisees were very conservative. The Pharisees were 100% against Rome, and they were sympathetic to the zealots of Israel. The Sadducees rejected the full authority of Scripture. The Pharisees may not have lived it correctly, but they did believe that the Scriptures were the final authority. Of those two groups that I just described to you, which one do you think Jesus aligned much closer with?
0: Well, I must begrudgingly say it was the Pharisees.
1: Well, the Sadducees rejected the spiritual aspects of everything. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection and Jesus believed in those things too. Now we know that he understood it better than any Pharisee or Sadducee ever lived. But yet something about this just makes me wonder, could that possibly be what John was meaning? By what John 1 and 24 through 27 says, it reads as if Jesus stood in the crowd with them nearly. Now I'm not saying he was there that day as John was talking, but it almost sounds like he could have been standing somewhere in the shadows. There's one standing among you.
0: So are you totally convinced of
1: this? No, and I'm not saying that he definitely was, but I I really haven't heard a better argument for what group Jesus might have been in alignment with. Why do we have to put Jesus in a group anyway? Well, we don't have to, and I know that some people try to paint Jesus as a lone wolf or as a rebel, but really, was he? Nearly every Jewish home was connected with some group or some people. They had a certain fellowship. There were three major branches of religion among the Jews, and two of them were the predominant ones, which was the Pharisees and Sadducees. The other group was the Essenes. Jesus had to have been in fellowship with one of these groups.
0: So you're saying his family would have been friends with a particular group and would have fellowshiped them too, right?
1: That's what I'm saying. And and here's the point. The Sadducees were normally the rich people. They were the high and mighty. They were the upper class. They were those who were looked at as high class. The Pharisees were more of the common people. They were more of a low to middle class. Well, we also know that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy people. No, and by that affiliation, they would have been more in line with the Pharisee group. Their status would have aligned them with this Pharisee group more than any other group. It was especially their religious views, though, that were much more in line with the Pharisees than they were with the Sadducees. Are you wanting Jesus to be connected with the Pharisees for some reason? No, not at all. And I preach against being a Pharisee. I preach against being a Sadducee as well. But the the fact of the matter is, is he grew up somewhere. He went to church with somebody or went to synagogue with somebody, we know that his family worshiped with someone somewhere in one of the synagogues. We know that they would have had fellowship with someone. It is certain that they were among some kind of a group, just like every other Jewish family was. It'd be total ignorance to act like Mary and Joseph didn't associate with anyone else at all. You're making sense, but I I just don't know if I can even, if I even want to believe it. Well, do you think that Mary and Joseph survived spiritually by only the angelic visits that they received? I mean, they had to go to synagogue with somebody, and I don't believe they went with the Sadducees. Yeah. The main point I want everyone to notice right here from what John told the Jews and the Levites is this. He told them the Messiah is among you, and you don't even have a clue. That's the sad point of all of it. This kind of reinforces John 1 and 10 through 12 to me, where he came unto his own, but they received him not.
0: This also goes along with the part about him being in the world, and the world knew
1: him not. Yes, it does. When it's transliterated straight from the Greek, we can gain a little more clarity here, because John told them that he baptizes with water, but in your midst stands one whom you know not. As we go into the next verse, we see John continuing his answer to this group of Pharisees. John 1 and 27 says, He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. John once again reminds them this one that they're looking for is coming after him. This is what he told us back in John 1 and 15, John 1 and 30. We see it again in Acts 19 and 4 where Paul is even mentioning this. John reiterates his point that this one who is preferred before him that's coming after him, he's favored above him. It can be seen as a sign of submission by John the Baptist that he's lowering himself while exalting Christ. Don't leave out the other
0: interpretation of this either. You told us a week or two ago that it can be interpreted as this one has existed before me. Thus, he is greater than me.
1: That is true. And I think that's in play here as well. John says he's not worthy to loosen or untie his shoes, which the Greek axios is defined right here as loosen. Regarding what he was unworthy to loosen, I know the Bible says shoes. Our KGV says shoes. John uses the Greek word hamas. Hamas is the thong or strap of a sandal. And sandal is the hypodema. In Greek, he would have said that he wasn't worthy to axios, the hemos of the hypodema. In other words, I'm not worthy to kneel down and take the strap off of his sandals. Why do you think John said that? Well, for one, slaves had the job of untying someone's sandals, and then they had to wash the person's feet. You believe that
0: John the Baptist was saying that he wasn't even worthy of being a slave to the one who's coming after him?
1: That's exactly what I'm saying. And Jewish tradition held that a disciple must serve his teacher in every task like a slave would serve his master, except in removing his sandals. Well, in Matthew 3 and 11, the wording has John saying that he is not worthy to bear the shoes of Christ. That's another job of a slave at times. To really lower them, the master would have the slave carry his shoes. He would carry his sandals. Well, John truly lowered himself and abased himself before Christ. That's right. Now, I want to point out another reason that I believe John said what he did right here. We read in Isaiah 52 and 7 that the feet of those who preach the gospel are beautiful. And the one who was anointed to preach the gospel? Let me read you about him. Isaiah 52 and 7 and Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Do you see that? The bring of good tidings is connected to the feet of the one that's preaching. The one who's preaching has been anointed by God. He's the anointed one. Here we have the Messiah, which means the anointed one, coming to preach the gospel to the world. And John says, I've recognized him, and I'm not worthy to bow down and even take his sandals off his foot. John was proclaiming he knew who the Messiah was before he ever said, Behold the Lamb. John might have been speaking of the beautiful feet of the Messiah who had come, who was anointed to preach the gospel of glad tidings that they had not even recognized. So in comparison, John knew that he wasn't worthy to unstrap the Lord's sandals. Let's go into verse 28 quickly so we can wrap this up. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. This verse is really more informational concerning geography than it is something doctrinal, but there are a few things that I feel a need to point out. I can't see much that can be brought out of this verse. Well, there's a couple of things. For one, we see Bethabara mentioned first back in Judges 7 and 24, and we have the Jordan River also mentioned by name as well there. Let me read you that quickly. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and take before them the waters unto Bethabara and Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Bethabara and Jordan. We read of this setting once again in John 3 and 26, and it's alluded to in John 10 and 40 as well. This is a familiar spot where Jesus resorted often. This is where John was. For some reason, John and the Holy Ghost felt it needful for us to know where John was when these things were taking place. John was baptizing people in the Jordan River near or in Bethabara. This is where he was when the priests and Levites were sent to him to interrogate him. Amen. Interestingly enough, this is the place where Gideon finally overcame the Midianites. This is where the two main kings of the Midianites were slain. Do you see some kind of connection between this somehow? The only connection point I see here is the possibility that it's regarding the waters of Jordan. The river of Jordan was too deep and too wide for them to cross at this point in the year. This is why the two kings of Midian became trapped there. Since the waters pull up there, this is where the kings were captured, but it'd also be a great place to do a lot of baptizing and you could baptize a lot of people in these pools of water so this is probably the place where john was at where the kings were trapped one of the most exciting prophetic things that could have taken place on the very next day happened in this setting as well
0: yeah but the problem is that we've run out of time i wish we had more time to go into this prophetic stuff you mentioned so i'm already looking forward to next week's study All right, we've got a question sent in here today. You ready for it? I sure am. All right, this this right here is a good one. Since it is hot summertime, is it wrong for boys and girls to go swimming together?
1: Okay, good question, really good question, and it's one that's probably needful to be addressed at some point, and I guess this is the point, right? I reckon so. All right, I was raised 100% against it. Almost all the holiness preachers stood against this for many, many years. Despite all of what I just said, I'm going to answer differently because I'm going to say it depends. To me, it depends on who the boys and girls are, what their ages are. Are they brothers and sisters? Are there boys and girls who are liking one another? Could they be possibly attracted to one another? Is this a family? Are you talking about a church outing? Will there be supervision? What are they wearing? I'm not against all forms of mixed bathing, as it used to be called. I'm for some forms of it, but in a very limited sense, I think it should be strictly limited to family and depending even at that on the ages of those involved. Most of the time, I would say it's not a good idea. If it's a family, I don't think it would be wrong if it was done decently and in order. I would never allow teenage cousins to go swimming together if they were some boys and some girls. I wouldn't want to do anything that would cause the devil to allow any kind of form of temptation or lust to rise that's not already going on in their hearts and lives as it is. When the clothing gets wet, it gets really clingy, and it reveals way too much for it to be decent. So therefore, if it's not decent, it probably isn't a good idea. Okay, good answer. Remember, folks, if you have
0: a Bible question or a question regarding how news or current events or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at DKMinistries1977 at yahoo.com. That's DKMinistries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today,
1: sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back next Friday, August the 4th, for special edition number 93, The Hanging of Haman's Ten Sons.
0: But for me, this I know, really changed my heart all around, put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go to that land where the milk and honey flow Oh, I've heard of such a place I can't go there by God's grace Never seen it, but I know I want to go